0: Welcome to episode 141 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, I need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Elena H. Amber Tennant Fry Joe Beckinsall Pinay Flying High Chantal Helberg Hannah Barana Brooke Leota Monica Vandermeerwey Servani Ganti Laura LeCour Monica Mims Louise, Kelowna Owens, Tiffany Funk, Angie and Heather, Chris Thompson, Caitlin Peterson, Kimmy Hinsman, Dawn Farrell, and Trish Tice. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. It is so appreciated and I'm thankful for you every single day. And our review this week is not a film review, rather it is a theatre review. And our review this week is 2.22, A Ghost Story. 2.22, A Ghost Story was released in 2021. It is currently running in the Noel Coward Theatre in London. And it has a general score of around four stars. Jenny, played by Lily Allen, believes her new home is haunted. But her husband, Sam, isn't having any of it. They argue with their first dinner guests, old friend Lauren and her new partner, Ben. Can the dead really walk again? Belief and scepticism clash. But something feels strange and frightening. And that something is getting closer. So they're going to stay up until 2.22. And then they'll know. So like I said, this is currently running in the Noel Coward Theatre in London. But because of its popularity, and it does seem to be really popular, I wouldn't be surprised if it had a national tour or if it had a US run even. I was really desperate to see this play because it was written by Danny Robbins. And if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you will know that I was obsessed with The Battersea Poltergeist. The Battersea Poltergeist was a podcast or is a podcast rather. I would really suggest that you check it out if you haven't checked it out already. And it was written and hosted by Danny Robbins. So he wrote 222, a ghost story. And because I'm kind of a big fan of his and the things that he does, I was really, really, really desperate to see it. So I'm going to, like I did with the Candyman review, I'm going to break this down into things that I liked and things that I not so liked. So this play really leaned into horror tropes. So Sam, the husband, was a really unlikable character. He was a total know-it-all. He was so determined to disbelieve his wife and to prove her wrong and to publicly prove her wrong to the point where he is scathing and quite patronising towards the other characters so you really dislike him and I felt the whole way through that he was just oh I just was so he annoyed me so much but again it was that classic horror movie dad kind of way where you just think can you just fucking listen to your wife for five minutes so that I think was a really he was a really well written character in that regard because he was so unlikable and then the antidote to Sam's Unlikableness was the character Ben who was played by Jake Wood. If you are a UK resident or an Irish listener, you probably know who Jake Wood is. He was he was an, an actor in Eastenders which is a really popular soap opera in the UK and Ireland and he his character was outstanding and his performance was outstanding. He played this salt of the earth builder from London who also just happened to be really into the paranormal in this hilarious way and I always think with horror stories, horror movies, films, really dark stories there needs to be some comic relief and his character was just really funny and I really enjoyed watching them and each character throughout the performance at various points gave their own ghost story, something that had happened to them and his story in particular like literally gave me goosebumps. His performance of his story I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was so good, really well told. And I liked that element of the play where you have four friends sitting around, conversation turns to ghosts and then you end up telling ghost stories. So I really, really enjoyed that. The last thing that really stood out for me as something really positive was the set the set was beautiful. It was this house that they were renovating, this open plan kitchen, living, dining room space with big French doors. And it was cleverly used to demonstrate the haunting in really subtle ways. And I thought, wow, that is that is a beautiful set. The other thing that I really liked about kind of set design were were some aspects of the soundscape. One of them being that they had the cry of foxes quite regularly. And that's from That's not a spoiler, don't worry, that's from the very beginning and it's a running joke throughout about the cry of the foxes, which is something that we've spoken about on the podcast before. We've played audio of it. It's something that's talked about. People often mistake the crying of foxes for like a woman being murdered or something supernatural. So I thought that was it was funny and it was clever. And speaking of soundscapes, there was another element of the soundscape that I really, really disliked. I don't like it and this is a very personal opinion and some people love it but I don't like cheap jump scares in horror movies and I don't like them on stage. I think if it is not relevant to the story the jump scare if it it doesn't fit in with the narrative like in horror films when they have a jump scare but it's just really loud music like nothing actually happens in the story it's just really loud music that annoys me. I find it really frustrating because I think it's cheap and there were moments where this happened in this play and I thought oh that's annoying because it's not it's not it doesn't add anything to the story so that I found that frustrating there were points of big kind of existential monologues too like I loved the ghost stories but there were these big monologues that reminded me of The Haunting of Hill House so in the later episodes of Haunting of Hill House it got to the point where all the characters would monologue in various ways uh, almost poetically and and I remember watching the Hill House the later episodes and thinking oh this is getting a bit it's getting a bit boring isn't it kind of a bit annoying and I there were moments of this play where I felt like that too where I thought oh let's cut that bit out and then we can move the story on and um don't want to be that person but I didn't think Lily Allen was that good so Lily Allen, for those of you who aren't aware, is a very famous pop singer here in the UK. Uh, I don't know if she's as popular in America or in other countries, but she's a very popular pop singer here. Her brother was in Game of Thrones, and I really like her and I wanted I wanted her to be brilliant, but actually I didn't. I didn't think she was as good as some some reviews made her out to be. Um Yeah, that feels a bit mean saying that, but There you go. That's just, that is what it is. But overall, I thought it was a really like fun night out, if that makes sense. Like it's it's an interesting story. It's generally well told. There's bits of it that annoyed me. There's bits of it that I thought could have been better or done better or executed in a more sleek way. But overall, I think I'm going to give it, I think, 3.5 stars if you are going to see it enjoy it. It's a really fun night. But yeah, I can't, I just didn't, I wasn't as enamoured by it as I thought it would be. But I do think a part of that was because I built it up too much in my head, which is never a good thing to do when you're going to watch a film or see a show in the theatre. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. insight into what this week's story is going to be about but as always the links to all of my information is in the description of this episode and let's get to it. The premise of 222 A Ghost Story was about whether or not ghosts are real and whether or not we can prove their existence. If you look at any paranormal caught on camera type videos on YouTube The comment section will be littered with people on both sides of the divide. People who are convinced that it's fake, and people who wholeheartedly accept that it's real. I'm on both sides, depending on the story. But it set me thinking about the legal system, and ghosts, and whether or not ghosts have ever appeared in court. Okay, bear with me on this one. I have two stories for you one from way back when and one more modern, where ghosts were key components in serious court cases. The boy knocked on the door. There was no answer. He knocked again, hammering hard enough that the wood stung his knuckles. Still no answer. Mr. Shu would kill him if he didn't do as he asked, so he sighed and rapped again. Mr. Shu was a blacksmith, "'and he scared the little boy. "'He had emerged from his forge, "'huge and soaked in sweat, "'and hollered at the boy to come here. "'He told the boy to go to his house "'and ask his wife Zona "'whether she wanted anything from the town. "'The boy was too afraid of Edward Shoe to say no, "'and off he trotted to the Shoe household, "'and now here he was, "'knocking incessantly on the door. "'There was still no answer, "'and the boy weighed up his options.' He could open the door and risk the wrath of Zona Shue or he could not complete his job and risk the wrath of Edward Shue. He definitely did not want to get on the wrong side of him so he pushed open the door. Mrs. Shue, he called. Mr. Shue sent me. What happened next scarred the boy forever. His 11 year old brain couldn't quite comprehend what he was seeing. Mrs. Shu was lying still at the bottom of the stairs. She was flat on her back, her legs were straight out, and her left arm was positioned by her side. Her right arm was resting on her chest, and her head was turned to the left. Was she sleeping? Had she fainted? M- Mrs. Shu? He called nervously, louder this time and hoping to wake her up. He nudged her with his toe, and nothing. There was no movement, and the boy was gripped with the dawning realisation that Zona Shu was very definitely dead. He backed out of the door and broke into a run as soon as he was outside. In his mind, there was only one place that he could go, and that was straight to his mother, who quickly called the county doctor Mr. George W. Knapp. Knapp arrived to the Shoe household an hour later and was met at the door by the sound of sobbing. He followed the sounds and found Edward Shoe lying over his wife's lifeless body. He had come home and found her at the bottom of the stairs and carried her tenderly up them. He stripped her body and washed her and dressed her in a beautiful dress with a stiff, high collar and a veil over her face. He sat holding her body in his arms and weeping. She looked smaller now somehow, being held by his hulking frame. The doctor wasn't quite sure how to manage this man, wailing and weeping and refusing to let him touch his wife's body. Knapp did a cursory check and deemed that her cause of death was an everlasting faint. A tragedy in a woman so young, 24 years old and in the prime of her life. He then, inexplicably, returned to the cause of death and changed it to childbirth, despite the fact that Zona wasn't pregnant and was not in the process of giving birth. But then, this was 1897, and oftentimes definite medical diagnoses were really just a stab in the dark. On January the 24th, 1897, Zona Shue, whose full name was Zona Elva Heaster Shue, was buried. Her husband wept and wept, holding her body right to the end, placing a sheet under her head to ensure that she was lying comfortably. But someone wasn't comfortable. Zona's mother, Jane Heaster, was suspicious. She felt in her bones that something was wrong. People died tragically and suddenly all the time... ...but she couldn't shake the feeling that this wasn't a tragedy. That it was murder. She had never liked Edward Chu. Zona had been besotted by him from the moment she had laid eyes on him. He arrived into town a striking muscular figure... ...and set up shop as a blacksmith. He worked hard and made good money and they had a whirlwind romance and were quickly wed. Jane had watched Edward grieving her daughter, and in some ways she scolded herself for being so darkly cynical. He was devastated, clearly, and she was bitter about the death of her daughter. Just before the casket was closed, Jane took the sheet from under her daughter's head in order to give it back to Edward. He refused to take it, and she understood that it was too difficult for him, so she decided to bring it home and wash it, ready for when he would want it back. When she was home and mulling over the horror of the events of the last few days, Jane boiled water in a big pot to wash the sheets. She allowed the water to cool a bit, before plunging the sheets in and scrubbing between her hands. She thought about her daughter how much life she had left to lead and tears poured down her cheeks. She sniffed and rubbed her cheeks with the back of her hand and as she lowered her hand she gasped and stumbled backwards away from the pot. Her hand was covered in hot, sticky blood thick and dark red and dripping down her wrist. Was she cut? Was it a nosebleed? No. It was none of those things. It was the sheet. The water had been freshly boiled and clear and the sheet had been white when she began. But now the pot was filled with what looked like blood. She scrambled back to the pot and looked inside. The blood was thick and congealing. She took a deep breath and closed her eyes, plunging her hands into the blood to retrieve the sheets and when she opened them, she was met with the sparkling white of the now cleaned sheets. She turned them over and over in her hands, water dripping onto her wooden floor. She looked back at the pot and it was clear again. And Jane sat in a crumpled heap, cradling the sodden sheets in tears. That night, Jane sat on the edge of her bed and she prayed. She prayed for respite, but a tiny little voice also prayed for answers. Was the grief consuming her, or was someone trying to send her a message? Nothing happened, and Jane continued to pray. One night, four weeks later, while in the deepest of sleeps, Jane's brain became flooded with a light. She saw her whole bedroom filled with a brilliant brightness, and then a shape began to manifest itself. It was her daughter. She floated above the floor, and her head flopped unnaturally to one side. She told her mother in detail about how Edward was a violent man, and that he had strangled her when he learned that there was no meat for his dinner. She told her mother what dress she was wearing when she was murdered. She told her mother exactly what injury she had and where. She finished her tale by turning her head all the way around on her shoulders and Jane woke bolt upright, screaming and crying. She did not immediately think that she had been visited by the ghost of her daughter, but the dream coupled with the phantom blood had unnerved her. The next night she had the dream again, and again the following night. In all, she had the dream four times in a row, and she woke up realising that in order to get peace, she needed to speak to someone. John Alfred Preston had seen a lot in his time as a local prosecutor, but Jane's story really took the biscuit. Initially, he respectfully dismissed her claims, but her insistence had an air of earnestness that he couldn't ignore. She knew what she was saying sounded like pure madness. But she also knew that this man had killed her daughter. Why was the cause of death written down as childbirth? Why did Edward not allow anyone to touch the body? Why the high-collar dress? He had wrapped her head in a scarf prior to her burial. What was he hiding? Whatever she said, she managed to convince Preston to at least speak to Knapp, the county doctor. On interviewing Knapp, Preston realised that he had not done a proper autopsy and that the intricacies of the case pointed to something suspicious. Her body was exhumed, and just like Jane said, she had been strangled and her neck was broken. Edward Shue was arrested, and as it happens, Edward Shue was not his name. His name was Erasmus, and he had a history of violence against women, Zona had been his third wife, and his second wife had also died suddenly. He was imprisoned and died in jail in 1900. Today, in Greenbrier County, a historical marker still stands at the cemetery where Zona is buried. It reads Interred in nearby cemetery is Zona Heaster Shoe. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to the state prison. Only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. Now that's not strictly speaking true. The events absolutely happened as they were laid out in this story. However, there's obviously no proof that her mother had those dreams, and if she did have those dreams, they likely were created by her subconscious, recognising that something was awry. The mother did extensive interviews with newspapers at the time, which are available to read, the link's in the description, but either way, her insistence prompted the case to be re-examined, and subsequently justice was served to her killer. And this story prompted a little digging about the law and ghosts. And if you're a law student or were a law student, you will probably be aware of the Strambofsky versus Ackley case. A case which shows that the idea of ghosts in the courtroom is not as outdated as you might think. Helen Ackley moved to one Levita place in the early 1960s. The house was beautiful, an imposing Victorian structure that had plenty of room for her and her husband George, their children and their grandchildren to live comfortably in. It sat at the end of a quiet cul-de-sac in Nyack Village in New York, and it was the perfect antidote to the big city. As with all of our haunted house stories, it started with footsteps. Heeled boots would click-clack up and down the hall at night time, and Helen would hear it during the day when she was downstairs. It was a woman's footsteps, purposeful and brusque, stomping down the hallway, seemingly stopping at each bedroom. At first, she believed that it was the pipes, or perhaps it was creaky floorboards. But when the children and grandchildren asked her wide-eyed if she could hear them too, there was no denying their existence. The events in the house were ferocious, but the Ackley's somehow lived in harmony with the spirits. The children would wake in the morning to their beds shaking violently. Their daughter Cynthia became so accustomed to this that on the first night of spring break she said aloud to the house, It's spring break and I don't have school tomorrow. Please don't shake my bed and wake me up. And whatever was in the house didn't. She woke in the morning of her own volition without any outside interference. It wasn't long before the entities in the house began to physically make themselves known. One day Helen was busy painting a room and was standing on a stepladder concentrating hard. She was suddenly overcome with the feeling that she was being watched. She felt that prickling sensation on the back of her neck and turned expecting to see one of the children in the doorway watching her. Instead, she was faced with a man who she had never seen before. She gripped the stepladder to steady herself. The man was sitting mid-air, seemingly floating, and he was rocking gently back and forth. He was undoubtedly watching her, and surveying the work that she was doing. Without really knowing what else to do or say, she asked him whether he liked the colour scheme, and he nodded his head in approval, and in the blink of an eye, he was gone. A woman was seen regularly, waltzing around the house, and Helen believed it was the same woman whose footsteps were heard stomping around upstairs. Helen's son, on leaving the basement one day, came eye to eye with a soldier. Helen was interviewed by both National Geographic and Reader's Digest, where she told her tale of living with what she believed were three separate entities. Her son-in-law wrote a post on ktransit.com where he outlined his own experiences at the house. His post reads as follows. This story deals with the house that my wife Cynthia spent her teenage years in. The house situated on the Hudson River at the bottom of a dead-end street. It was, or is, a 5,000 square foot Victorian house with three levels plus a full basement and an attic. Cynthia's parents, Helen and George Ackley, bought the house in the late 1960s. At the time, the big Victorian sat vacant and was in disrepair. Neighbour kids told them as they moved in that the house was haunted. It wasn't until later that the Ackleys found the truth. The ghosts and the Ackleys lived at peace with each other. There was never an intentional scare to any of the Ackleys or their visitors. Nyack sits approximately 20 miles north of New York City on the west bank of the Hudson. Many people of the area know about the haunting of this house. As a matter of fact, the Hudson Valley is known for many haunted places. Just straight across the river lays Tarrytown. Just outside of Tarrytown is the legendary Sleepy Hollow. This was made famous by the Washington Irving's Halloween tale of the legend of Sleepy Hollow. Many of Irving's tales are based on legends of the lower Hudson Valley. The legend of the Nyack House made print in the Reader's Digest by an article submitted by Helen Ackley herself in the May 1977 edition. She told of various instances about the ghosts making their presence known to the family. Here are a few tales. One ghost would wake my wife up for school every morning by shaking her bed. A few of the grandchildren received gifts from the ghost in the form of baby rings. All of a sudden they just appeared. My wife received a gift of small silver sugar tongs. My wife's eldest brother's wife received coins. While painting the living room, Helen saw one of the ghosts looking in approval of the colour. She always got the feeling that the ghost liked the renovation they had done to the house. I had two personal experiences with the ghosts. They both happened soon after I moved in with my future wife Cynthia and occurred about one month apart. The first happened on Christmas Eve. I was home alone due to various activities. I was playing Christmas elf in the living room and putting gifts together. It was totally quiet in the house. After a while I kept hearing a muffled conversation coming from the dining room around the wall. I would get up and walk over and nobody was there. I felt like I was being watched. I had purposefully turned on every light in the surrounding rooms. I was getting nervous. Then my future brother-in-law suddenly pounded on the door making me jump out of my skin and the talking stopped. The second incident happened in our bedroom on the third floor. It was a clear, dark night. Cynthia had already fallen asleep and I was drifting. Then I heard the bedroom door creak and the floorboards squeak. My back was to the edge of the bed. Suddenly the edge of the bed by my midsection depressed down and I felt something lean against me. I went literally stone stiff. I was speechless and could hardly move. I was able to twist my neck around enough to see a womanly figure in a soft dress through the moonlight from the bay windows. I felt like she was looking straight at me. After about a minute, the presence got up and walked back out of the room. I finally relaxed enough to shake my wife out of a sound sleep acting like a toddler who had just had a nightmare. Later I reflected on the incident. I believe the ghosts were checking me out because they knew my wife and her ex-husband. They probably wanted to see if I was a good person for her. It was the woman that used to shake Cynthia's bed every morning to go to high school. After that episode, no other sightings occurred. I did get the impression that they did approve of me, and my wife and I were married about 18 months later. In 1989-1990, taxes started getting out of control. So Helen decided it was time to sell the house and move to Florida or Texas. And this led to a big court case. And this is where this story gets really interesting. The court case. One Levita place was declared legally haunted in 1991. Let me explain. After running into some tax issues, Helen Ackley decided to sell the house. Jeffrey and Patrice Strambovsky paid Helen Ackley a down payment of $32,500 to secure the purchase of the house. The Strambovsky's were allegedly unaware of the reputation of the house until an architect happened to say, oh, you're buying the haunted house. Jeffrey Strambovsky was not afraid of the prospect of ghosts, more so the reputation of the house bothered him. The house had been featured in National Geographic and Reader's Digest. It was a stop on a haunted homes tour of Nyack and allegedly ghost hunters travelled for miles to visit and were often found snooping around the garden. Strabovsky decided that he no longer wished to buy the house as it was sold without disclosing its haunted nature but Helen refused to budge and as a result it went to court with Strombowski stating that and I quote They were victims of ectoplasmic fraud. They lost the first round in court, with the judge citing the caveat emptor doctrine, which simply means, let the buyer beware, i.e. the buyer has a certain responsibility to uncover potential flaws in the house. Undeterred, the Strambowskis appealed, and in a landmark case, Justice Israel Rubin ruled that because Helen Ackley had discussed the haunting with two national publications and it had been widely discussed with neighbours and the realtor, to her knowledge, the house was haunted and therefore, in this case, it was legally haunted. Whether the source of the spectral apparitions seen by defendant Seller are parapsychic or psychogenic, Justice Rubin wrote, having reported their presence in both a national publication and the local press, defendant is stopped to deny their existence, and as a matter of law, this house is haunted. This judge ruled in favour of Strombowski, and Strombowski got his deposit back, but was awarded no damages for the case. The best thing about this case, however, aside from the sheer ridiculousness of it all, is the closing statement of Justice Rubin. If you're in the habit of playing drinking games, I would suggest that you take a shot for every paranormal pun that you hear. A very practical problem arises with respect to the discovery of a paranormal phenomenon. Who you gonna call? As a title song to the movie Ghostbusters asks. Applying the strict rule of caveat emptor to a contract involving a house possessed by poltergeists conjures up visions of a psychic or a medium routinely accompanying the structural engineers and terminix man on an inspection of every home subject to a contract of sale. In the interest of avoiding such untenable consequences, the notion that a haunting is a condition which can and should be ascertained upon reasonable inspection of the premises is a hobgoblin which should be exercised from the body of legal precedent and laid quietly to rest." So that's it. A legally haunted house. If you're interested, the number of people who wanted to buy the house skyrocketed after the publicity and it was sold relatively easily. The subsequent residents never reported any supernatural activity in the home since. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you know of any other haunted cases that were played out in court, please do let me know and not The Devil Made Me Do a case because... I uh, just know, just know. But if you know of any other cases, please do send them my way. I'd love to read about them because I think it's really fascinating. Also, besides the kind of obvious fact that I'm not a lawyer, I know that might surprise some people, but I'm not a lawyer. The legal system in the UK is very different to the legal system in the US. So if I've pronounced things wrong or if I've said something that you think, "Hang on a second, that's not accurate." It's not it's not intentional. It's it's uh, I did try and make sure that I got all the the phrases right etc but it, it, it's sometimes quite difficult when you're not familiar with a particular system so if I did get it wrong I deeply deeply apologize so thank you so much for listening if you would like to send your own spooky story you can do so by emailing it to real life ghost stories podcast at gmail.com you can also find out everything you need to know about us on real life ghost stories podcast.com and on that note we shall see you next week Rory and Kid here from the award-winning podcast, This Paranormal Life. Every week we investigate a paranormal story and decide if it's real or a hoax. Like the time a guy claimed he punched Bigfoot. Or when a UFO showed up at a football game in front of thousands of people. Each episode has sound effects, music, and storytelling that feels so real, you'll never sleep again. You will. Stop it, you're gonna scare away new listeners. Check out This Paranormal Life every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts.